Hello and welcome to Pythagorean Astronomy. I'm Chris North and what you're about to listen to was originally broadcast as part of Pythagoras' Trousers, a science and engineering show on Radio Cardiff. You can find a full show and listen to past episodes at pythagorastrousers.co.uk. But for now, here's this month's astronomy. It's been an exciting month in the solar system again with me, Edward Gomez, uh, back again. Hi, Chris. Uh, we should start off... Um, slightly further out from the Earth. We'll come back to the transit of Mercury, which is the big news of early May uh, later on. But in terms of exploration of the solar system uh, series, this dwarf planet, the largest object in the asteroid belt, with the Dawn spacecraft, NASA's Dawn spacecraft, uh, now in orbit around it, it saw bright spots when it first arrived. Um, and now it's been orbiting for a, a year or so. We've got more information about what those are. Yeah, it's quite tempting to think about uh, asteroids, which is what series is, as being just a, a lump of rock uh, with nothing else on it, just you know, uh, just rock and barren. Um, but these reflective things um, clearly are not just rock. And um, one of the interesting things about Ceres is that it's also quite different to a conventional asteroid because it doesn't appear to be like potato shaped. What you think of as being uh, something uh, that that is. You know, amorphous um it's actually like a ball um it's 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 large enough so that gravity has formed it into a ball it's about a thousand kilometers across i think it's pretty it's pretty big yeah that's right it's um uh, it's it's certainly as large as some of the moons in the solar system mm. and um so this thing is really a little world on its own and we think that these shiny things they 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 appear and they disappear uh which is always unsettling if you're in an astronomer because uh, uh, these things appear and disappear relatively rapidly um, we've seen them in um, in the last few years sort of uh, shrink and grow and we think it looks like frozen lakes uh, from looking at earth observation um, they look very much like frozen lakes so these things could be uh, uh, lakes that are fueled from some sort of underground oceans or underground rivers possibly uh, that are uh, filling up lakes then they're evaporating um, probably um, over, it's quite a compli complex process maybe or it may be just as simple as uh, when they get sunlight on them and that causes evaporation and then they fill back up and, and what we see left what dawn has seen these bright spots often in the centers of craters so maybe that's excavated down low enough to um, be below the water table yeah. or something yeah what we see there is not is not so much the frozen water, but it's the salt deposits that are, are left behind. Yeah. Right? So these bright spots are not they're not actually bright enough to be ice. They are these these salt deposits, and that the fact that they're salty means that the water that uh, hypothetically left them that's the the hypothesis at the moment that that pooled on the surface and then, and then maybe evaporated has been in contact with rock at some point. So it's a salty, rocky ocean like the oceans on the Earth but possibly beneath the surface. And this isn't something that's unique to Ceres. We've seen this in other bodies as well. Uh, yeah, and something that particularly interests me about uh, the composition of the water is there's, there's an idea called the period of heavy bombardment, which uh, we think brought the majority of the water to the Earth. And we're having a, a, a bit of a difficulty finding uh, comets and asteroids which have the same... Uh, chemical composition of the water that sounds a little bit strange because mm. obviously you know that it's H2O but actually a certain percentage of the Earth's water is uh, is heavy hydrogen 
um, this thing called deuterium. So you look at the, the, the difference between the conventional water and this, this uh, slightly heavier water, and um, you compare that to what we see in the solar system. Now, if Ceres has the same or a similar composition to, uh, to the Earth, then that could be you know, a nice explanation for the mysteries. And there's been a lot of conjecture over recent years, decades, uh, that, that comets brought the water. But they, as you say, they don't match the composition. Or they don't seem to. Some of them do, but most of them don't. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, asteroids are a big conjecture. So maybe this period, what, 3.8 billion years ago, or yeah. not long after the solar system formed, uh, is what brought a lot of the water to uh, to Earth, which would be it, fascinating. Yeah, that's right, because the, uh, as... Uh, the majority of the asteroids that we know about are in the solar system, whereas the comets come from uh, this thing outside of the solar system called the Oort cloud. So there could be, you know, that could be the reason that there's a difference in what we see in those things. It's so, where they form, essentially. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And the uh, the comet that Rosetta visited, 67P, um, that doesn't have the same chemical composition for the, the water on that uh, compared to the Earth. Dawn is not the only spacecraft that's been visiting a, a small object. Not, in fact, not the only uh, spacecraft visiting a dwarf planet. The other uh, most famous dwarf planet, I guess, is Pluto out in the Kuiper Belt. Uh, and New Horizons, uh, as many people will remember, in June last year, whizzed past Pluto at tens of thousands of miles an hour, uh, took loads of photos, uh, lo lots of images, lots of data. Those are coming back to us. The initial results showed indications that were glaciers nitrogen glaciers so not water vapor not water glaciers but nitrogen glaciers on the surface of pluto and there's been more stuff in the imagery coming back with possible nitrogen or frozen nitrogen lakes yeah and this is quite puzzling uh, because the the pressure on pluto's surface the atmospheric pressure of pluto is very low and um given the temperature you'd expect the pressure to be higher to have you know a, a solid phase of of nitrogen um, but we clearly see glaciers, we clearly see these um, these lakes, and um, so that there must have been at some points in the past you know, liquid nitrogen on the surface, and that really tells us could there have been something which caused Pluto's atmosphere to thin out? Um, did it have a thicker atmosphere in the past so that uh, so that nitrogen could have been in a different phase? So it's it's, it's quite. An interesting result. And it, it could be uh, Mars, we know, has lost its atmosphere over billions of years, used to have liquid water, now doesn't. Did Pluto used to have liquid nitrogen and a few billion years ago, now doesn't? Looks to be recent activity. It could be cyclical as well, of course, because Pluto's on this 248 year, is it? I forget exactly. Uh, long, very long orbit around the around the sun. It could be this cyclical nature. And yeah. it's got a unique environment with a large uh, Sharon. Uh, it's large moon Sharon next to it, and that all the tidal forces there are going to be quite extreme. Yeah, and, and unlike the Earth, the Earth's orbit around the Sun is, although it's elliptical, it's more or less circular when you compare it to Pluto. Um, and so, uh, and, and Pluto is also inclined. Uh, so m almost all of the planets go around like a record or a CD. If you're a younger listener, um, <laughs> or a, actually, younger listeners probably don't listen to CDs <laughs> anymore anyway. But um, uh, the uh, but Pluto is inclined uh, res with respect to the majority of the other planets uh, and, and minor planets. So um, that could also have an effect too. Mm. Interesting seasonal variations. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Coming back in with the, the Saturn system, we have the Cassini spacecraft has been orbiting Saturn since uh, the, the mid-2000s, 2000, 
2004, 2005, yeah. it, it arrived there. So it's been there for over 10 years now. Last couple of years of its mission left before it gets plummeted into, into Saturn's uh, atmosphere in uh, September 2017, which is fantastic images, well, close-up images, of course, coming up uh, when, <laughs> when that happens. But in the meantime, a result that's come out recently, it's got indications of, of cosmic dust, so interstellar dust from another solar system having travelled past and been collected by the spacecraft. Yeah, that's very weird to think about. So these these dust particles did not originate in our solar system. They're not they're they're, they're alien in many ways. Um, and how did they get there? Um, and uh, what we can learn from them is actually very valuable. Um, we don't really have so we can see cosmic dust out in the universe by looking at uh, infrared light and. Uh, we can see it everywhere. It's actually one of the things that appears in almost everywhere, close by and also in the very, very distant universe. Um, we've been able to sample cosmic dust in our own solar system uh, by uh, various different missions managed to uh, either a spacecraft recorded some cosmic dust or the, there was actually a, a mission called, I think it was called Stardust, mm. uh, which collected some cosmic dust in this weird stuff called aerogel, um, and allowed us to uh, analyse it. But we've never been able to analyse and look at cosmic dust that comes from outside of our solar system to know whether it's the same type of thing. And so being able to have cosmic dust grains that are from outside that were maybe produced in um, another solar system and were blown into our solar system by uh, a, a supernova, an exploding star, or, or, or some other process just were lingering about and uh, for, for several billion years and then just, you know, happened to interact with us, um, then it, it is incredibly mm. rare and useful. There are only something like 30 individual yeah. dust grains that have been collected, but still, it's not one. Yeah. You know, it's 30. It's something that the reason they know they're, they're cosmic dust grains is because they, they travel in different directions to most of the dust going around Saturn. Most of the dust going around Saturn are grains that originate from Enceladus. This, this tiny moon that has geysers coming from its south pole provides a lot of dust going around in the same kind of orbit around Saturn. And these interstellar dust grains, these cosmic dust grains, come in from all sorts of different directions and very, very, very quickly uh, yeah. compared, to, compared to the Saturn. That's how they identify them as being interstellar. It's something actually there was... There was a a tweet or a comment, I think, from uh, from Brian May, or Dr. Brian May, of course, uh, who, uh, when he was doing the, his thesis for the first time in the 1970s, said he saw that something that might have been related to this, uh, but was was told not not to bother publishing it because uh, it's probably <laughs> nothing. So, uh, so maybe there was something back in the 70s, and it's been seen before with, with previous spacecraft that we have seen indications of this uh, as well. Of course, coming back. Uh, um, Right into the centre of the solar system, we've got the transit of Mercury coming up uh, in early May. So 9th of May, from about midday UK time until about 7pm, which is, or about 6pm maybe, which is about when the when the sun sets, of course, it doesn't set much longer after that. Mercury will appear to pass in front of the sun. It's a pretty rare occurrence, a dozen times a century or something. Um, and it's going to be a nice opportunity to, to get people looking at the sun, safely of course, and little Mercury passing in front. So we're going to be doing it from Cardiff, and yeah. it should be fun. Yeah, it should be, it should be very fun. It's going to be quite difficult to see. Uh, so if you can make a projection, a pinhole projection of this, uh, that is going to be the best way for you to see it. If you have eclipse glasses and they're not punctured or uh, mm. anything left over from last year's um, partial solar eclipse, 
then it's a good way uh, to look at it. But you will be quite hard pressed to see Mercury pass in front of it because it will appear as a very small dot. If you saw the transit of Venus back in 2012, I think. Yeah, in 20, uh, 2004 before that. Yeah, yeah then uh, it's significantly smaller than Venus appeared. Yeah, it's it's uh, about twice as far away and about a third the size. So yeah. uh, that puts it as a sixth the size of Venus, probably below what you can see, as you say, with the, with the naked eye. So there are ways of doing it with specially adapted telescopes. And we'll be out uh, on the steps of the National Museum here in Cardiff observing it on the uh, on the 9th of May with suitable equipment. It is very important to reiterate you shouldn't look at the sun directly or through any, certainly through any optical devices that aren't appropriate, uh, appropriately uh, filtered and correctly fitted uh, as well. So only do that if you, if you know what you're doing or the person who's setting up uh, knows what they're doing. It's Mercury is this enigmatic world that we don't know much about other than what we've seen from a, a few flybys of Mariner in the 70s and then the Messenger mission uh, more recently. It's, um, it's, a, it's a weird place. Yeah, um, Mercury is, uh, like you say, enigmatic. It looks... It actually looks quite boring mm. in many ways, uh, and very similar to the moon. Um, in in actually in both size and appearance, um, it's uh, it's a greyish colour and it has a load of impact craters on it. Its day is pretty close to its year mm. as well, so um, which um, is makes obviously anything on the surface. Uh, very difficult to uh, if if it had any interesting history in the past, um, it, it probably you know wouldn't have had uh, an, an awful lot uh, of interesting stuff happening on it. Uh, it but it's heavily cratered, um, which again is slightly worrying uh, because it's the closest planet to the sun, and you tend to think about most asteroids as being confined to the asteroid belt, but they're not. Um, there's an awful lot of Earth-crossing asteroids uh, which head on into the, in towards the inner solar system and the Sun. But also one of the reasons for it being or it appearing heavily cratered is that um, it obviously hasn't changed a lot in a long time. So the, the surface hasn't had volcanic activity uh, like the Moon has had. Uh, where uh, they, the surface has lava flows over it, um, which have covered up craters. So you're basically seeing, you know, almost the entire history of Mercury there on the surface. There are indications that Messenger saw of some sort of ancient geological activity, and actually possibly within a billion years or so, so possibly quite recent of um, of some changes in the in the floors of of, of craters. There are there are things they call the, the hollows, where something appears to be almost eroding away the surface, maybe material um, sublimating, so turning from a solid into a gas and disappearing uh, out into space, um, leaving the, these hollows in the, in the centre of craters, and also maybe some excavation of um, dark uh, carbon-rich material around the edges of craters that maybe is a, an old crust of mercury that's been brought to the surface by, by these impacts. Um, so lots of fascinating stuff um, that we're learning about mercury. One of the odd things, that one of the, the most confusing things about it that's been puzzling people for, for decades really is it's got a very very large iron rich core or it appears to have from its density and from observations of messenger as it orbiter could tell to learn about its interior in, internal structure and the core is is very large compared to the planet itself theories that it used to be bigger and then had a massive impact stripped off much of the material went away when it, it seems that the surface wasn't 
hasn't been heated up to high temperatures, so it hasn't had this massive impact. So lots of stuff to learn still about the formation of Mercury and these inner planets. And that, of course, may tell us lots about other solar systems as well. We, we don't know much about how they're forming, of course. Yeah, that's right. And we seem to see a huge variety of extrasolar planets, these planets outside of our solar system orbiting different stars. Mm. Uh, so it just shows that there is a huge variety in our solar system, uh, uh, just as much as we're seeing outside of the solar system. Now, in, in 2017, the uh, so next next year, yes, Bepi Colombo, which is the, the next big ESA mission to go to, uh, to Mercury, is going to launch. It'll take a long time to get there, but it will get there after uh, a number of years uh, orbiting the sun to, to spiral inward slowly. And, and tell us lots more, uh, lots more about Mercury. But speaking of missions, we mentioned other solar systems there. There has been a proposal uh, earlier this month for a new mission to other, another star system. Now, this sounds like science fiction and is a way off, is a, is a few decades <laughs> off. Something called um, Breakthrough Star Shots. There's a, there's a group of uh, entrepreneurs and scientists led by Yuri Milner, who's a Russian entrepreneur, um, with Stephen Hawking, uh, Professor Stephen Hawking on board as well, and uh, Mark Zuckerberg, the CEO of Facebook, um, <laughs> and a large panel of scientists and engineers and technologists and so on, um, and astronomers and so on uh, behind it as well. Their proposal is to send a, a fleet of tiny spacecraft, possibly to Alpha Centauri, the nearest star system. We say nearest, it's still a very long way away. Yeah, it takes light four years to get from Alpha Centauri to the Earth, so... We're not going to be traveling that fast. Yeah. So it, even if they're traveling at a, you know, a, 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 an appreciable fraction of the speed of light, it's not going to be a slow journey to get not only to get the, uh, the, the, the little spacecraft there, but then to receive the signals of anything mm -hmm. that they might meet there back. Now, this, is, this isn't about sending people to Alpha Centauri. It's quite, yeah. quite clear. This is about sending tiny spacecraft and lots of tiny spacecraft. And that's because if you can build lots of them very cheaply, they have this idea of a space chip. Uh, so it's a chip that weighs about a gram, very, very light, and has on it a computer. This is essentially mobile phone technology uh, going yeah. back into the space uh, space age. Um, uh, a computer, a camera, maybe some communications and, and so on. Very, very light. You make thousands of them, and then you send them to Alpha Centauri because space is a dangerous place with cosmic rays. You don't want to put all your eggs in one basket of one big spacecraft, right? Yeah, that's right. And cosmic rays, if they hit anything electronic, they'll just fry it. You can also have problems with on very small things. That's something we mentioned earlier, cosmic dust. You know, that can just punch right through one of these tiny little things and um, can destroy it. So you really want as many of them as possible. Um, a little bit like uh, frog spawn, <laughs> just yeah. to get your eventually to get your frog to Alpha Centauri. <laughs> yeah. Uh They'll make thousands of them um, and launch them. They reckon that's going to take, going to take decades to, um, at least a couple of decades to, to get the technology. Because one of the other things they need to do is the propulsion. Now these won't be launched or these won't be propelled to Alpha Centauri using conventional chemical rockets. They use something called a light sail, similar to what people might have heard of a solar sail. But this is just the power of light pushing things along. Yeah, that's a slightly weird concept, and uh, it's something that makes I don't know people feel a little bit uneasy, but. Uh, light has this weird property that it, it has momentum and that's all to do with quantum mechanics that really you don't need to worry about but it is something that we we can measure in a laboratory and um if you just like uh if you're playing snooker uh you can hit a ball with another ball and transfer the momentum from one ball to the other you can do the same with light um 
strange as it might seem. So you can fire a laser at something, and if that something, uh, well, and that the momentum from the light will be transferred to that other thing. If that other thing is in space, uh, so the friction is very low, and that other thing um, has a low mass, then uh, you can get a large velocity out. And that's really what they're hoping to do here. Now, to get a large velocity out, you need to accelerate very quickly. The proposal is that you have these light sails, which are going to be very, very, very thin, lightweight material that will will be deployed somehow. Um, the somehow is still to be determined, I believe. <laughs> uh, and then we'll have a massive laser shot on it. The stuff we've done in the solar system before has used sunlight to push things along, and yeah. you get very slow uh, accelerations out of that because the sunlight's not that intense. The proposal is you get a, a laser that's 100 gigawatts. So if you have a laser pointer in lectures or in the classroom or anything or something at home, it's probably one milliwatt. So this is uh, a trillion times more powerful yeah. than that. Um, and that's got to fire at these things for a couple of minutes. And the plan is that in doing that, you accelerate them up to uh, 20%, so one-fifth the speed of light. And that means you can get to Alpha Centauri, for example, in 20 years. Not quite four years, but 20 years, which is achievable on a human time scale. Yeah. So you've got, uh, if by comparison, the uh, the power output of the sun is about a kilowatt per meter squared. Mm. Uh, so this would be uh, a, a gigawatt, which is a million times more than than that. But it'll be over a much smaller area. Yeah. Now, there's a lot of technology development required there. Not only the light sail, you don't want this light sail absorbing any of that or much at all, because it'll just fry if it absorbs too much of the, the heat, too much of the power from the laser. You've also got to the laser we have lasers that are that powerful but they tend to be pulsed and fire for very very short you know, billions trillions maybe quadrillionths of a second tiny fraction so so getting a laser that's that powerful to fire maybe for a few minutes is a massive technological achievement but something that i'm sure other industries are looking at anyway yes you've also got to get it through the earth's atmosphere so adapt- adaptive optics which is something that astronomers use to correct for the fluctuations in the earth's atmosphere might be important as well um, I'm sure the military are looking into that sort of thing for fine ha- <laughs> yeah. high-power lasers around as well. So, Yeah, because uh, high-power lasers are, as we said, that they, they, they can be used to nudge things. Mm. Um, so if you have a high, high enough power laser and you fire it at something, this was basically you know, what the Star Wars program was that uh, mm. uh, President Reagan had in the 80s. Yeah, not the films. Not um, the films, yeah. Um, yeah, so you could nudge things. You could, If you had a powerful laser that was absorbed, you could essentially fry things, blow yeah. things up and so on. It's, it is, does sound very science fiction. The idea of the project, it's not based on technology the far, far future. It's based on technology that's in the near future. Their suggestion is it'll take 20 years, but it's not cheap. They reckon 5 to $10 billion to develop this, which is a lot of money. Yes, yeah. Not a huge amount compared to Apollo. Apollo program in the 1960s and, and 70s was about 100 billion in today's money. So it's a, it's a, a tenth of that maybe in, in terms in terms of this. But we will need private investment. And so this initial launch, I suspect, is to get that investment off. There are, there are all sorts of technical technological challenges that they've got to overcome. Um, I think the jury's out on whether they'll do it, but hopefully it will drive technology. I mean, this is what we need to do to, in the end, in centuries' time, be able to go further. Right? This is the, the initial steps. Yeah, and it's it's very difficult to... We are on a tiny little island, you know, in the middle of nowhere, and we need something bold like this uh, to 
to explore further than our, our solar system. And between our solar system and the next star, it's just a lot of nothing. And of course, with 20 years development, 20 years mission, a few years to get the signals back, we're talking 50 or so years, half a lifetime. Uh, so the people currently leading it will be at the very least retired, but yeah. quite possibly not alive when yeah. this comes to fruition. So if you are interested in taking part, then I suggest you get in touch with Yuri Milner and uh, <laughs> Stephen Hawking and, and maybe Mark Zuckerberg yeah. uh, to get involved in the project. Maybe they'll be taking... Uh, or, or maybe excite your children to get yeah. <laughs> involved yeah. in the project or perhaps grandchildren. Yeah. So uh, a, a long duration project, but should be uh, should be very exciting. In the near future, of course, we have got that transit of Mercury to look forward to. And uh, we maybe will have some things to report on uh, how, how much fun we had here in uh, Cardiff, assuming it wasn't cloudy uh, next month. So for now, Edward, thanks very much. Thanks. You've been listening to Pythagorean Astronomy with me, Chris North. It was originally broadcast on Radio Cardiff as part of Pythagoras' Trousers. <laughs>